Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. Uh, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with James Osborne. We're at Oregon State University in Corvallis. It's December 12th, 2023. And James, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Uh, first question is why wine? Why wine? Uh, for me, it was a fascination born out of microbiology, actually. So um, I didn't grow up really being surrounded by wine in any way or even really beer or any alcoholic beverage. Um, I grew up on a dairy farm in New Zealand. And so I, I grew up around milk, <laughs> milk and cheese and things along those lines. Um, and so it wasn't really until I started studying at a university, started studying microbiology and took some classes that introduced me to the fermentation process and the products that can be made through fermentation that I really got interested in the use of fermentation for positive you know, production of products and things. So. Uh, I, at university studying microbiology, the, the university I was at had kind of two tracks, and one of them was kind of more of a medical microbiology track, and then one was more of an applied, so water microbiology, fermentation microbiology, and I'd take classes in both of those. And I remember taking all the medical microbiology classes, and they were interesting, but pretty gross, and <laughs> I, you know, I, it didn't really interest me, but the, the use of microbes to produce a product uh, value-added product and just learning about that whole process was pretty fascinating and you know as a 19, 20 year old learning a bit more about how beer was made, how wine was made, that also was fascinating. So that kind of uh, opened I guess the, the door to learning more about wine production and the role of microbes um, because it, I found that, that, whole, that whole aspect of it really fascinating. So that led me to um, after my bachelor's degree uh, studying uh, wine microbiology for my master's, so um, I was kind of looking around, thinking about jobs, and uh, a professor who taught that applied micro class had an opening in his lab looking for a master's student, and so I just kind of jumped in and thought, yeah, this seems like a good idea at the time, and so that was really my first introduction to, to really wine and learning a bit more about it. Um, and so I've come at wine from a very academic point of view, I guess. Uh, in that uh, it wasn't the love of wine necessarily that drove me to microbiology, but the microbiological aspects of winemaking that was really fascinating. And uh, that whole world of what's going on uh, during fermentation and what's going on in the wine um, is still really fascinating to me and, uh, you know, a real, for me, a real driver of research and research interest and research passion is understanding all these different microbes that are in there during that process, what they're doing, how do we um, understand what they're doing, how do we maybe manipulate them in one way or the other to you know, make a bit of wine or prevent spoilage or whatever it might be. So yeah, my, my journey to wine is, I think like most people's journey to wine, it, it, there isn't a normal journey to wine, at least in my discussion with, with, with people in the wine industry, and Oregon's a great example of that. Uh, how did you get into winemaking? It's a, you never quite know what the answer is going to be to that. So. Um, you know, I'm just one more story, I think, to that, uh, you know, there's a million different ways to get into the wine industry. When you headed, were headed to university, what were you thinking you would be doing? What was your kind of goal at that point? I was fairly open-ended. Um, so I grew up on the dairy farm, like milking cows and doing that, and I enjoyed that, but as a 18-year-old, I, I didn't want to become a dairy farmer. Um, 
getting up at five every morning, seven days a week, uh, was not really, I didn't see myself doing that, at least as an 18 year old. Um, but agricultural sciences, you know, understanding that some of the sciences behind that, uh, that was fascinating to me. And at school, you know, I enjoyed biology and chemistry and things along those lines. So I pursued that and I went to uh, Massey University in Palmerston North, which is near the bottom of the North Island in New Zealand. And it's the major agricultural university. This it's kind of very similar to a land grant university here in that it was formed really as a for horticulture agricultural sciences and then it's growing beyond that but that was its initial foundation so uh, you know a very whole ag driven university uh, so i started off studying like agricultural sciences and uh, my route to microbiology came through studying soil microbiology so i took a soils class and i took a soils micro class and uh, yeah, really kind of got exposed to more microbiology than I had in high school. Um, and that, and I veered off even further into microbiology and, and ended up in wine. So at the time, I, re I really, you know, I was thinking you know, something along the service, ag services that support the ag and hort industry, maybe research scientist or technician at one of the, um, at the time, research, uh, they were government-driven research um, institutes in New Zealand that supported hort and ag. Uh, those are the type of careers or things I was thinking about once I got into school a little bit, you know, I think starting university, you know, sometimes you know for sure and other times it was pretty open-ended for me. Um, the New Zealand University system, you kind of have to make up your mind pretty quick because we're, uh, most of the degrees are only three-year degrees, it's more on the British system and so uh, you don't, can't really take a couple of years to figure out your major. Um, so luckily, I, you know, I knew kind of the area I wanted to focus in. Just, you know, I didn't necessarily foresee myself being uh, an academic, um, working at research university as I've ended up. But uh, that's that's kind of where the path led in the end. So after the kind of initial interest in fermentation and microbiology on kind of a macro scale, tell me about the master's level work uh, as you sort of focused on wine. What was the initial kind of your initial uh, response to an interest in the wine as you started to learn more about it? Sure, so my project was looking at um, malactobacteria, so the bacteria involved in the malactofermentation, and we were looking at some specific metabolism of products um, in wine that may have either detrimental or positive effects. So we're looking at uh, the metabolism of acetaldehyde, so it's a com compound that yeast produce that's commonly in wine, um, that may have some either beneficial um, aspects to color or may have some maybe negative sensory aspects. So that was the project was at the time there wasn't much knowledge about the ability of the bacteria to metabolize this compound. And so we did kind of a screening of a lot of different lactic acid bacteria and looked at the metabolism of that. So at a research level, that's sort of what we're looking at. But then we got to do that work in model wine and then we moved on to making wine and, and doing that in wine. Um, as well as collaborating with um, a, a group, a research group um, in Hawke's Bay. And so Massey University is not really located in wine country. If you look on the map where wine is made in New Zealand, there's nearly none around Palmerston North, but the Hawke's Bay region, which is about a two hour drive away, there's quite a large industry there. Um, a little warmer climate there than Marlborough, where most of the wine is grown in New Zealand. Um, so they have more some more Bordeaux varieties, uh, Chardonnay is a, is a popular grape there. And so we did some additional work out at, uh, in Hawke's Bay, uh, working on making Chardonnay wine and applying some of our, some of our bench top kind of results and seeing if, if the same things happened on a slightly larger scale in wine.
So that was kind of my first a real, real exposure to wineries and the wine industry around the Hawke's Bay. Um, but it's really just a little, a little snapshot of, and it probably wasn't until uh, my PhD work here in, uh, in the States that I had more exposure to the broader, to, to more wineries, I guess. So my master's work was probably more benchtop work, but we did do some small-scale winemaking and, and did a little bit of collaborative work with a, um, a group out in the Hawke's Bay. Did you find anything that was unique to wine versus sort of other things you had studied at that point? Um, I think, maybe I didn't realize it at the time, but in the context of when you look at microbial ecology and different, the production of different products, uh, wine always, to me, stands out as kind of unique in that um, you're always dealing with background microorganisms. There's not really this sterilization or pasteurization, a kill step that happens at the start of fermentative processes, like cheese making, for example, we pasteurize the milk, mm -hmm. and then you add a, a starter or brewing, where again, you're, you're heating up the war and you're, you're really kind of a pasteurization almost step there before you're adding. So uh, in wine, you know, there's things we can do to maybe um, a, amend the amount of microbes that might be in there. We can add a starter culture to dominate the ferment, but there's no like sterilization step. So mm -hmm. you're always dealing with a mixture of microorganisms, um, even if you're intending only one or two of those ones to do the, 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 the deal for you, there's always background organisms and they always play a role. So um, that aspect of winemaking from a microbiologist's point of view was pretty fascinating because um, how microbes interact and uh, you know how they react to each other you know they're they're like us in that some of them get along some of them don't get along some of them are very neutral they don't really care um, and understanding how that might work and how that might impact wine quality so early on you know studying that in class and learning about it didn't really strike me but then learning more about it and starting to study it and thinking about microbial interactions and, and the kind of uniqueness uh, uniqueness of wine from that sense so grapes come in every year they're slightly different so they're going to be impacted by you know the climate etc so there's always a slightly different microbial load come into the into the winery as well so there's it's it's a pretty dynamic uh, dynamic situation and dynamic kind of area to, to study microbiology. So that's kind of, I think, from a unique point of view that wine sits in that, in that area where um, it's more of a management process, microbial management, versus a complete control process. Uh, you never have complete control. Uh, it's always a management thing and doing what you can to you know, promote the growth of organisms you want it, you know, so fermentation, you want Saccharomyces, so you promote conditions that will be conducive, and then later on, it's all about creating conditions where you're trying to prevent the growth of other organisms. So it's this management, you know, and looking at what tools we have to, to manage our microbial populations. So um, in some ways, it, for total control, it might be nice to just be able to get rid of everything off the grapes and juice and start with zero and just add in what you want and then control it completely. But uh, grapes don't allow that and barrels don't allow that. So you're always dealing with, uh, dealing with other microbes uh, during the process. Mm. So at that point, you mentioned you hadn't really intended to be go kind of the academic route. Did you ever consider getting into winemaking or viticulture or anything along, or anything along those lines? I did a little bit. I explored um, during my master's as I was getting closer to the end and thinking, okay, what's the next steps? Um, you know, I looked into jobs and, and what might be out there, and uh, it was 
really during that process that I got the next opportunity to continue um, my research work. And you know, I really, I really enjoy doing research. Uh, as an undergraduate, you don't really get exposed to it very much. But then uh, once you have an experience in a lab, you find out whether that's something you like to do. And so I really enjoyed that whole process of, of finding out something new, of discovering something. And so when there was an opportunity to continue with a PhD, I, again, I decided that uh, that was the right route for me, uh, even though I could have seen myself going into the industry at that point. So. Um, Small world, the world of modern microbiology. So my soon-to-be new advisor in the states knew my advisor in New Zealand, uh, and they connected. and He was looking for a PhD student working on malactobacteria. I was working on malactobacteria, and so uh, I started just emailing um, uh, his Dr. Charlie Edwards up at Washington State University, and uh, sight unseen, he's like, "Okay, yeah." Sounds sounds like sounds like uh, the right person for the for the for the um, for the project, and so I was like, okay, sounds good. I'll uh, I'll come to uh, to Washington State for for my PhD. And um, funnily enough, at the time, I asked my advisor about about Washington, about where it was at Washington State University, and he initially told me it was in Seattle. So. Of course, the dreaded Huskies are in Seattle. Um, so at the time, I looked up, you know, Seattle. I, I know about Seattle. Um, sounds like a cool city to go to. And then uh, Pullman is a little bit inland of of Seattle. But uh, so but I quickly realized that WC wasn't 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 in Seattle. It was in Pullman. Um, and so yeah, that that began my kind of my second second journey, if you like, and uh, talking about academics again into academics. Uh, at that time, I really enjoyed research, and so that was kind of the driver for for going into a PhD. It wasn't necessarily wanting to be a university professor or anything like that. Um, and uh, while I was at Washington State University, part of their requirement for for a PhD is to do a little bit of teaching, to be a teaching assistant, to teach some lectures and labs, and um, so I started. I, I did that during my second year there, I think. And enjoyed that as well. I really enjoyed the uh, enjoyed the interaction with the students, um, kind of the preparation of the material and just the teaching of it. And uh, that kind of broadened my horizons a little bit as to, you know, potential potential job opportunities, a potential career um, outside of just uh, strictly research, where the you know the university offers you the the positions to be able to 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 do research, conduct research, but also teaching and, and other aspects to it. So I, I definitely saw that that as a good as a viable option. I still was keeping my options open as far as um, where to go after after my PhD. But um, it was during that time that I you know got to do a little bit of teaching and found that uh, I kind of kind of enjoyed that. I didn't necessarily see myself as a teacher early on. My my elder sister was a, a elementary school teacher, and there's lots of teachers in my family. Um, but uh, so I guess I, now I, I ended up joining the joining the ranks. But um, uh, the, I think the flexibility of the university of being a professor, being able to do have teaching and work with students, but then also conduct independent research and work with graduate students and things like that was was also appealing. Before coming to Washington State, had you spent any time in the in the states? I had not. No, uh, actually, coming to the states was the first time out of New Zealand. 
So I hadn't, uh, my family, we weren't really, we traveled around New Zealand for holidays and things, but we never left the, left New Zealand. Uh, so yeah, that was the first time, uh, first time leaving, leaving the shores of New Zealand, uh, flying all the way over here to, uh, flying over the Palouse and the wheat fields. I remember flying into Pullman, uh, it was kind of at nighttime. Um, and so yeah, it was a bit of a, and it wasn't really a culture shock because America's not, you know, there's a lot of, New Zealand is very similar to America in a lot of ways, you know, westernized with the same TV shows. And, mm -hmm. uh, although there's a bit more of a British influence in New Zealand too, we're interesting um, mash of those two things. Mm -hmm. um, probably the most surprising thing to me when I came, came to the States was um, uh, college sports, <laughs> which, which now looking back on it, you know, I, I was aware of college sports and the size of it and stuff, but just, uh, you know, New Zealand really, we don't have anything like that. We have the national teams and maybe some regional teams that have stadiums and stuff, but Pullman, this little town of 30,000 people, it had a stadium, football stadium was larger than the largest stadium in New Zealand. So, so then the national rugby team plays, they play in a stadium. It's bigger now, but at the time, a stadium that was smaller than the stadium that was in, uh, that was at WSU, which is one of the smallest stadiums in the Pac-12, Pac-2, whatever, uh, <laughs> that we have. So, so even then it was a smaller, you know, but, but that, whole, that whole thing, which I, I jumped in, into it, went to all the games and really enjoyed it. But yeah, at the time it was, yeah. Well, that and fraternity and sororities. Uh, I, I'd only seen those in the movies, and I think I assumed they were more of a movie thing, or maybe just Ivy League schools had sororities and fraternities. But WCU had up on College Hill have, have quite a lot of uh, Greek houses, and mm -hmm. that was also that was my two cultural shocks: <laughs> the enormity of college football and the sororities and fraternities. Yeah, that sounds pretty typical. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, it's all subtle stuff, uh, you know, little things. And um, my wife, uh, who I met when I was at WSU, she's an American. She found the same thing coming to New Zealand. Like, uh, lived, she, we lived in New Zealand for about 18 months or so after my PhD. And it's the little subtle differences that, mm -hmm. not the big obvious ones. There's always these little, how you say something, how you ask for something, you know, all these little things that happen when you live in. So nothing, nothing major, but just uh, I still continually find those little little things that are different. What was your, tell, tell us about the experience of the PhD program and I'm also curious about sort of your introduction to the Washington wine industry and your interaction with the Washington wine industry. Sure, so my project, my PhD project uh, was still focused around malolactic fermentation uh, and we were looking at interactions with Saccharomyces cerevisiae. So this that kind of also got me into that world of microbial interactions. So the specifically, we were looking at why some malolactic fermentations seem to be more problematic than others. So the alcoholic fermentation is usually fairly reliable, but often the malolactic fermentation, that secondary one with the bacteria, can be a little more problematic, and sometimes there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason for why it's problematic. Uh, and one of the, one of the um, potential mechanisms is uh, inhibitory interactions with the yeast. So the yeast that does the primary fermentation, uh, something occurs, maybe it's production of a compound or consumption of some essential nutrient, that then means that the bacteria, when you add them in to do the secondary ferment, uh, have problems. So we were looking at uh, trying to understand what the mechanism of inhibition might be. And it was fairly open-ended, which you know often PhD kind of projects tend to be that way. That's the goal of them is to be a little bit exploratory and kind of that changed you know paths as you go along. You conduct one experiment and then maybe change to a different 
you know, based on those results. And so um, I enjoyed that. It was fairly, I enjoyed the, the, the exploratory no nature of it and fairly independent research of it. Um, so there was another PhD in the lab who'd been there a few years, so kind of trained up on methods and once got comfortable with the different methods that we're going to be using, it was fairly independent study and then just checking in with the advisor and updating on things and coming up with new projects. Um, mm. So that whole, that whole process, we were, we were trying to identify potential mechanisms. So what, what ended up, what, what we found were a couple of um, products that Saccharomyces, certain Saccharomyces strains produce in higher amounts and something unique as well that could be inhibitor to bacteria. So one of those was a known compound, sulfur dioxide, which is used as an antimicrobial. And uh, others had shown that, that some, some yeast produce enough of that compound that they can inhibit, inhibit the bacteria. And we looked at that and we also looked at um, the, the um, nutritional status of the must, the great must, that actually impacts how much SO2 is being produced by the yeast. So you could create conditions in the must that could lead to very high amounts of SO2 that then would be inhibiting the bacteria. Uh, and then we also looked at some, there were some situations where that didn't explain the issue. So the yeast, very little SO2 being produced, but still inhibitory. So we looked at nutrients as a potential and kind of crossed that off. And then we looked at production of other potential inhibitory compounds. Um, and so we were able to identify a really small peptide um, that this particular yeast produced that was inhibitory of the bacteria. And that was kind of a unique, unique finding at the time. So this whole interactions piece between the yeast and bacteria, we kind of uncovered some new potential things that needed to be considered if you were to uh, want your wine to go through malolactic. So this project was funded by the, um, I think it was the Northwest Center for Small Fruits Research, which is uh, heavily, heavily influenced by industry. Industry are on the board and help decide the research priorities. So um, as a student, I was um, able to give reports, uh, research reports to the industry group and interact with, the, with industry in that way. So talk to them about uh, our results and also, you know, are these, do you guys ever have any problems with malolactic fermentation? What wines might it be? Under what conditions? So that, that, was, that can sometimes be helpful to help like narrow down an area that you might want to focus in on more. So um, that was a good kind of one of my first introductions to a lot of two-way interaction with the industry on um, what the problems are or even refining what the problems might be that, that we could start to kind of dig in a bit more with research. Um, I got to travel to Walla Walla and to the Tri-Cities area. Those are the two main hubs there for, for uh, wine production. Um, it was a while ago, Walla Walla has changed a lot since I was, since I was there as a student in 2000, what was that, 2002, I suppose, is when I went to Walla Walla. I know I've been back there more recently and it's certainly grown and changed a lot. Um, but uh, it also introduced me to a lot of Washington Syrah, which became my favorite wine uh, at the time. Still is one of my favorite wines. Um, and so yeah, got to, got to taste a lot more wine and that as part of that project too. Um, not directly related to that project, but just when you go out and visit and talk with winemakers, it's uh, you know, always uh, fun to, to try to do some tastings and taste through different wines. And so yeah, Syrah, Washington Syrah became top of my list. <laughs> My next question was actually going to be about developing a taste for wine. So I'm, I'm curious, since you came at wines differently than other people, you came at it from the scientific interest background. Uh, tell me about developing a taste for wine, and does knowing so much about what's going on inside the wine affect your ability to enjoy it? 
Yeah, so, yeah, that's a good, that's an interesting question about, you know, you know the, uh, the inner workings of things or, you know, you get trained on identifying faults. So um, one, one part of my research program is looking at uh, microbial faults. Mm -hmm. So things like Britannomyces spoilage, for example, or lactic acid bacteria spoilage. And so you do get kind of hone in on those things. Um, so I'm not a huge fan of Britannomyces uh, in wine. I like it in beer. I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Salby. And I don't know if that's just because I, I don't do research in the area, but um, uh, in wine, yeah, it's, 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 it's a bit challenging to, to get past wine that's, that's got too much Brady characteristic mm -hmm. to it. Um, I don't know, as a, as a whole, I think I can separate, my, separate things somewhat to, to enjoy wine without being overly analytical about it. Um, it depends when you're with friends or people that know you're in the, you know, what you do, they're, they're always curious about things and asking, which is fun, but uh, it's also fun just to enjoy the wine and not, not have to overly analyze it. Um, but there's still, you know, I still feel like I'm, a, I'm, I'm really still, and you continue to be learning about all of these things uh, because I came at it from, you know, I didn't grow up or really have a, a lot of um, experience drinking wine, th even through my, through academics, uh, through my graduates, graduate work. Uh, you know, since I've been in this position, drinking a lot of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and learning more and more about these things, learning from, you know, as we go on, develop, continually develop my palate. Um, but, but yeah, microbial faults, uh, yeah, now, EA is the other, ethylacetate is the other one that, uh, that I'm always looking for in wines because we've done work on uh, cold soaking and so the, uh, the non-saccharomyces yeast involved in that process and some of them producing ethylacetate and so, uh, you know, you kind of evaluate for EA, evaluate for Brett because it's just my, you know, the two areas that we've worked a lot in. So as you're coming to the end of your PhD program, what were your what were your kind of your thoughts for your next step? And tell me about the sort of the opportunities you had at that point. Sure. So so at that time I I was newly married, I guess about a year we were married, and um, the plan was to move back to New Zealand, um, and uh, look for academic jobs in New Zealand. Uh, at the time, nearing my end of the PhD, there was an opportunity to go and work at the University of Auckland. They had a new enology um, program, a new wine science program there, relatively new. Um, it was just a graduate level program, so not an undergraduate program. And uh, they were looking for, at the time, um, someone to help manage their research winery and do some teaching and help and kind of collaborate with researchers in that group. So uh, I took that position and went back to New, moved back to New Zealand. I took that position with a thought that was really a stepping stone to, to something else. So um, that was a good, uh, you know, I enjoyed that job. It was fairly short-lived. Short um, at the time, we, there was a professor, a couple of professors at the university that were, were putting together post, uh, an application for a postdoc. So uh, that was where initially I thought this might lead to. So. Uh, there was some government funding, New Zealand government funding for postdocs in lots of different areas, and so we put together a postdoc, an application for a postdoc, um, and that was supposedly going to be the next step, but it didn't didn't pan out. We didn't get funded for that, so then um, I was kind of looking for what the next thing might be, and so the 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 winery um, position 
sorry, the, the research wandering position kind of ended and uh, I was looking into, at that time, the timing was quite nice to look into just doing harvest, just working at a winery. So that was kind of the end of December, New Zealand uh, harvest starts usually February, something like that. So I sent my CV out to a bunch of different wineries around that region um, looking for work and uh, there was a large, a large winery there called Delegates, um, Delegates Oyster Bay. And uh, their main facility is down in Marlborough, but they had a large uh, facility in Auckland that did they, did, they fermented, but they also finished, they got a lot of wine shipped up from Hawke's Bay and from Marlborough and with the finishing and bottling operation as well. So they had a lab there and they were looking for uh, a lab, someone to work in the lab during harvest. And so they wondered why <laughs> with a PhD I wanted to do that at the time. I'm like, I just want to get some experience and you know, working in a large winery and this would be great. So I jumped on board and uh, worked in the lab there at uh, Delegates um, from February, it was about six months. So it was a extended harvest. Um, and that was really valuable. So um, I'd only had really interactions with smaller wineries and not worked a harvest. And so looking back now, you know, jumping into this job after that, um, that was a really valuable experience. Working at a, a larger winery, seeing kind of the inner workings. So this was a, we were bottling about a million cases a year at that facility. Um, lots of comings and goings, lots of, you know, decision, decisions on 100,000 liter lots, not one liter lots like I've been working at. It was really eye-opening on the, the production level of winemaking and the logistics involved and, uh, and things like that. Uh, I enjoyed working in the lab where they had a really great um, couple of other people in the lab, lab manager and another lab tech, and you know, refine some of the methods, introduce some new methods there. So got to do a little bit of you know, added value while I was there uh, and just really enjoyed the experience. Um, even working harvest, we were, um, let's see, it was 24-hour shifts. It was 20, 12, two 12-hour shifts. So they were 24 hours for probably about three weeks, maybe four weeks. And uh, in, the, in, the, in the lab, we had to, I think we were on a, I was on a one-to-one, -one, so 1 a.m. to, to 1 p.m. shift, although you had to be there earlier. So I got used to working nights um, for that period of time um, and uh, got, the whole, got the full harvest experience um, of working really long hours um, with a really good crew and enjoying it and uh, eating a lot of, uh, that's one thing I miss about New Zealand. Eating a lot of pies, meat pies, were kind of the driving, the driving food behind, uh, behind working in the winery. There was a, a really good a little bakery down the road, uh, and they did pretty good, pretty good service from from the from the winery because every every lunch we were down there for a meat pie, uh, at least one meat pie. <laughs> but I think we all we all probably lost weight during harvest. That's usually the way it goes too. So we were eating bad, but uh, yeah, lots of. Lots of effort in the winery, so yeah, I learned a lot in that process. Really, um, which was really valuable to have that one, have that industry experience, even if it was just a short, you know, six-month kind of stint. Um, that really helped stepping into this current job, which you know had a lot of industry um, extension work. So a lot of working with the wine industry, and so they to just have a little bit, you know, starting off as a fresh new assistant professor. Um, to go out and talk with winemakers and at least have some commonality there and a little bit of grounding so it wasn't just straight out of a lab with a PhD and thrown into, into that. So certainly, um, you know, 
I didn't know what I was doing. It, nobody really knows what they're doing when they start, but um, you know, at least I had I had some understanding and experience there, and uh, that's only growing. So that that was a really valuable experience. Um, looking back at doing that, um, uh, that I've been able to carry, you know, carry some of that into my into my current job. Given all that you knew at that point on a kind of academic level. How did the actual act of harvest and winemaking compare to what you expected? You have a lot less control, <laughs> especially in the winery of that large. So there's lots of things you'd like to do or maybe control or, you know, that, that on a small scale, you know, when we do research stuff, you have total control. Um, you know, our whole goal is control everything except one variable so that we can figure out if something happened. I know in a production setting that that's not the goal, but even in a production setting, it's, it's all about um, compromise. So compromise, good compromise, but still compromise. Like you know, you have to make these decisions, and so um, I think that was that was a little bit of an, a learning experience. Just um, learning how those decisions are made, and being in wine, you know rooms with there was there was two or three winemakers, a couple of winemakers, and a couple of assistant winemakers, and being in that room, hearing the discussions, and and being able to be part of that from the lab group as far as how decisions are made, and and yeah, a lot of things are are a compromise, and um, you you can't always make the perfect decisions you'd like to, or do exactly everything you'd like to, because it's just the mm -hmm. the reality of it when. Um, when you're working with these, and it's not just large wineries, but just the production setting of it, and the you know the financial realities of it, and the logistics of it, and being um, being the major bottling facility for this large winery, we were on very tight schedules uh, because most of the wines were due to be shipped somewhere, so they weren't internal. You know, New Zealand exports most of its wine, so you know it would be shipping to Australia or shipping to the UK or shipping to the US. So there were there were all these deadlines and timelines that had to be met and. Um, you know, working working within those constraints uh, w was also, oh, I think, uh, a valuable experience. Um, we were charged with monitoring the bottling line for any microbial contamination. So we're taking bottles off the bottling line and screen and filtering them and looking for making sure the sterile filters were doing their job and things like that. And so, you know, when something pops up, what what has to happen to that lot and the time that's lost. Um, if there are any problems during that process and what that means for all these downstream decisions that have to be made. So uh, I still remember that like the time, the tight timeline they, they were on to try and get their wine shipped and into the UK market before the UK summer started. So, you know, we were making wine in February, February, March, and then trying to get the Sauvignon Blanc onto the shelves in by June at the latest in the UK. So very short windows because it's a very competitive market mm -hmm. and wanting to get 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 those wines on the supermarkets ready for summer when everyone wants a nice nice cool glass of seven New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, and so yeah, all of those things that trickle down to the production level of what has to happen at the production level to get the wine to the UK by June and when as it has to be on the ship to get to the UK and all these things like that. So things that, you know, certainly as a researcher, uh, you know, you're, you're very focused on that, on your projects and your, you know, little things you're looking at, but uh, it all fits into, you know, a, there's a whole lot going on to get, to get wine, seven, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc to the UK or to the US we're shipping to as well. So you mentioned the position here. Tell me about how that came about or kind of what your next step was at that point. 
Yeah, so I was working at the working at the winery and uh, just looking for jobs still and keeping an eye out for different things. And um, this position um, popped up, advertised. So the uh, an extension research teaching position here at Oregon State University. I was aware of Oregon State um, when I was at Washington State. Uh, I'd met um, some students who at a national conference, the American Society of Enology and Viticulture Conference. Uh, I remember hearing some talks from OSU students about uh, Oregon Pinot Noir at the time. It was actually a conference in Portland. Um, and uh, I'd, I'd visited Portland before for that conference, but never really any other parts of Oregon. But uh, my wife wasn't familiar with Oregon and uh, enjoyed the, the Northwest. So when this job came up, uh, it seemed like a, a, a great opportunity. Um, it had the academic aspect of it, with teaching and also research, and then the location. So uh, my wife's parents still live in Pullman, Washington, and so being back in the Northwest, uh, close to them, you know, my family's all back in New Zealand, so it's kind of we're either away from her family, or away from my family, as far as as far as um, that goes. So it was uh, to come back to the states for this for this position. Uh, at least it would be close to close to her family and in the northwest enjoyed the the northwest the climate and the people and just the general culture here um, so yeah so i flew over for an interview um you know thought i'd give my best shot never know and uh yeah i really enjoyed the interview got to a day out in the industry so the first day of the interview was all here on campus meeting with lots of different people and lots of different groups i can't remember it all it was a blur uh and then the second day with some um some faculty we went up into the to the lambert valley actually we went up to um oh there's a restaurant in dundee um across from across from argyle what's it called uh, the Dundee Bistro? Yeah, Dundee Bistro. Yeah, so we met at the Dundee Bistro for lunch and met with a group of winemakers there because the position was an ex had an extension component to it. So working with industry was going to be a big part of the position. So they had a bunch of questions for me and I had a little, a little, a little blurb to give them. Um, and so that was kind of my first interaction with the with wine industry folks. I still remember um, chatting with Roland Souls. Uh, um, and so he, he had spent time in, obviously in Australia and things like that, and so he was, he was quite the character to chat to there. I, I distinctly remember chatting with Roland, Roland and his moustache. Um, and so, that, yeah, that was my first kind of interaction with the organ industry. And, um, yeah, I, I, did a, I guess I did a good enough job that I, I got off with the job, um, which, was, which was amazing. Uh, so that was, you know, that was in, like, May, I think, and... Uh, my wife moved. My wife and I moved back here in August. Um, my wife was like seven months pregnant at the time, six, seven months pregnant. So uh, it was quite a move back. And uh, she, my son was born about two months after I started the job. So he's a good um, favor. Forget how long I've been in the job. I have to remember how old he is, and then I'm good. Um, what year was that? The 2006. 2006. So uh, September 2006, uh, I started here. So tell me about the, you mentioned the extension part of the role. Tell me, about, tell me about the initial role for which you were hired and sort of your first first year on the job. What were the, kind of the big the big milestone tentpoles for you? Yeah, so it's it's interesting in academics. You kind of, I got an office and uh, do your job um, <laughs> sort of thing. And so, yeah, my role was split between teaching, research, and extension. So I, I had some teaching obligations, um, some set classes that I was going to develop and teach. So there was a class that was already being taught that I was taking over as well as kind of developing it, um, 
I wouldn't say a new class, but we add, we're adding some credits and making making it a larger class. So there's that aspect to it that I knew, like the, the definitive timeline on. Okay, you're teaching this class in this term. Um, and that was a lecture and lab class that involved wine production. So I had that. I knew I could work towards uh, research. Was all about getting my research lab um, cleaned out and set up and figuring out what what equipment I needed and then getting going with with grants and you know students etc. In the first year, is starting to get that momentum. And then from the extension point of view, from industry point of view, working with industry was for me was all about. Um, me learning the industry and getting out there and introducing myself. So uh, I tried uh, to visit as many wineries as I could in the first year. So I'd just take a day and go and hit you know, half a dozen wineries, talk to winemakers in the Willamette Valley, or take a day, an overnight trip down to Southern Oregon, um, went out to Walla Walla. Um, so it was about just meeting with, with, with winemakers that hadn't been someone in this role for a few years since um, I don't know, yeah, a couple of years at least. And so just to let people know that, that there's an analogy extension specialist at OSU, kind of um, that can be a resource for them. And then also just chatting to them about what are, you know, what are some things you're dealing with? What are some, some problems? What are some issues? What are some things you think that uh, would be good to, you know, work on either education side of things or from a research side of things. So it was definitely a bit of a, you know, finding my, finding my feet as far as that. There are, there's some, you know, industry organization, Oregon Wine Board, for example, that um, can provide, you know, they, they provide a lot of input on research priorities, you know, they work with the industry to develop those. So there was some guidance as far as, uh, these are kind of some current industry priorities for analogy, but um, for me, it was really helpful to, to, to talk with um, talk with the winemakers, but partly it was just to introduce myself and like, you know, make some contacts. Uh, at the time, there weren't a thousand wineries in Oregon, so I wouldn't say I had every winery, but I, I, I did a fair amount of them. Um, but that was when there was probably, you know, less than 200 wineries at that point for sure. I think if I started that now, I'd, it would be never-ending. By the time I'd got through them all, there'd be new wineries starting up, and I'd just be continuing. But uh, that has been a big change, even in you know, my time here, is the growth of the industry. But yeah, at the time, it was it had grown a lot and was seen as had, hadn't grown a lot mm -hmm. since the early 2000s. But you know, looking back at the numbers, you know, we were still on the bottom of that of that upward curve. So yeah, so I, I did a lot of driving and. Um, meeting winemakers and tasting wine and just just um, doing those sort of things. So that was my my goal initially was just to, to um, get out there and you know introduce myself and, and look for opportunities to do that at, at regional meetings and the Oregon Wine Symposium. Uh, I got involved in, in um, Involved in the, the organizing committee for the technical sessions there. That was when it was at the time was down in Eugene, mm -hmm. uh, and so I got to you know give a talk down there as part of a session, and and you know just those sort of opportunities that came up. So in your first year, I, I mean, I found in my first year, um, I was generating a lot of my own work. You know, if that was all, and then after a few years then there was too much work and then it was a matter of prioritizing. So the first year or two was all generating your own work. So that's, you know, getting your research lab going, getting grants going, and then getting students on board, getting the work started. And same with the extension piece. And then um, the other extension piece that I did um, probably more focused on the first few years was uh, doing events like workshops. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, soon after I was hired, uh, Dr. Patty Skinkus was hired as a viticulture extension person. So uh, we ended up doing a lot of joint joint workshops. We'd go out to places, you'd do a morning of vit and an afternoon of wine or enology or something like that. Um, so we did a few of those out in different uh, different parts of the state. And so that was a good avenue too um, as well to promote the the, the program and who we were is to actually put on some events um, and there'd been kind of a lack of those sort of training events for a while as well. Um, been a gap for a few years where it hadn't really been much so um, that was a, another uh, I think a successful way to to kind of get out there and do that. What were your initial impressions of the Oregon wine industry, the people, the wines, the, the places and what were the kind of as you were asking all those questions, what did you see as the, the key sort of need needs or, or places for growth? Yeah, my first impressions of the industry, I mean, very friendly. I, I enjoyed enjoyed meeting lots of different people with lots of different backgrounds. Um, I I enjoyed the smallness of the, you know, the, the seemingly kind of um, tight-knit community uh, that everyone seemed to know everyone in certain regions and there was still, there was a lot of of, um, sharing of ideas and sharing of you know even resources and things like that I think that's borne out from the from the early days of the industry that it's that's how how it's grown and how it's been successful is you know it's very much an open uh, an open community that that really works well together and I found that more and more and more as we've been involved in lots of other um, as the industries grow and there's still that um, mentality about uh, sharing what's going right, sharing what's not going right, what's going on, what's working for you, what's not, and adopting those ideas and things. So there's been a real sharing of ideas that I've enjoyed and really enjoyed being part of. Uh, so there's not this, um, we figure this out, but we're just going to keep it to ourselves mentality. There's definitely a shared mentality of, you know, that's the same. The, the cliche saying of a rising tide lifts all boats, but it's it's very true that an industry, uh, I think Oregon is a great industry as an example of that, um, that we're all striving to make better wines. And so we want everyone to make great wines because, um, you know, if, so, if a consumer has an Oregon wine that's not so great, it doesn't just reflect on on, on that particular producer. So we want everyone's, everyone's quality to be improved. Um, so to your point about what um, what the main issues were, I mean, there's there's always some specific things that pop up, but generally, especially on the wine side, maybe maybe the vit side, there might be some more specific things they encounter more year-to-year um, -year changes or things like a new pest or disease or um, you know some change, you know, some cooler year or hotter year. They often have some specific things on the wine side. Those have carryover into the winery, but often we're dealing with more just kind of long-term, bigger questions that have always kind of been out there. So, you know, what is it that uh, that gives great mouthfeel in a red wine, for example? How do you understand that? And I'm not a phenolic chemist, so I don't have to answer that. But um, <laughs> but there's maybe a microbial aspect to it. But that you know those sort of questions, those quality questions, um, changes in the vineyard practices. How do those translate into the winery? From my point of view, kind of the microbial aspect of it, is there something unique about some of our microbial populations or, you know, native fermentations or cold soaking? What contribution, if any, does that make a difference in your wines? So some of my early research kind of looked into cold soaking and microbial populations during cold soaking because that was a pretty common practice for Pinot Noir and is a common practice for Pinot Noir here. So that's 
unique-ish to, to Oregon. There are a lot of cold soaking all around the world, but I think proportionally, you know, there's a lot of Oregon Pinot Noir is cold soaked. And so um, from a microbial point of view, what's going on during that process and um, is it having an impact on, on, on wine quality, wine taste and aromas? And then if it is, then why? And then once you understand that, then maybe how do you maybe take advantage of that? How do you, um, you know, manipulate conditions in the cold soak to promote something or, or decrease something else? So um, those are some of the things that, that I recall that kind of helped guide some of my uh, you know, early research. Um, because sometimes with a, as a new professor, some of your initial research is kind of carrying on from your PhD. There's always things you didn't get to, um, so you kind of carry on. So some of my early projects were kind of some, some follow-ons from my PhD work, but then really more um, then led to more work that was specific to you know, issues or problems or priorities that the Oregon industry had. So I'd mainly focus on malactobacteria in my graduate work, and while I still have got projects related to that, now I've branched out. You know, I work with non-saccharomyces yeast or Britannomyces spoilage or things because those are those are all you know things that came up as being as being needs and, and uh, areas that we needed more knowledge in and interest in. Mm -hmm. So, but always the universal question of quality, mm -hmm. uh, which is very difficult to define from an academic point of view. What is wine quality? Mm -hmm. But understanding, trying to understand better some of the drivers of certain aromas or mouthfeel um, and then the microbial kind of contribution to that was where my piece would fit into it. So tell me about your role and how it's evolved in the time you've been at Oregon State, uh, kind of steps along the way um, and kind of along with that, um, how the needs of the industry have sort of driven that or helped that evolve. Yeah. Um, so my position up until recently hasn't hasn't really changed as far as the, the the breakdown of teaching and research and extension still having those three core duties, um, and so still teaching a wine production analysis class. Uh, the, that's changed, you know, and adapted over time, but it's still you know fundamentally, uh, you know, how to make wine and what what you analyze and how you analyze and why and and all the aspects to that. Um, on the extension side, that's that's changed and morphed over time as well. Um, the industry has grown larger, so looking at better at ways to reach that industry um, beyond just uh, an occasional extension workshop. Um, so, you know, how do we distribute our information digitally, social media? You know, I'm I wouldn't say I'm an avid social media user, but that's becoming more and more uh, part of my. I have to think about that more and more ways to, to get information out. How do pe how do people um, receive information and look for information? Because there's a lot of information out there, but you know, not all of it is very trustworthy or, or use. You know, so so um, that that's been a piece of on the extension side of things. Is um, yes, there's still um, you know workshops around certain topics and areas that are helpful, but also looking at other ways to. Um, extend that information of new research and new findings and things were, that are going on. So the, when I first came, and I think it's still true now, there's, there's certainly a wide breadth of experience and scientific knowledge or technical knowledge in the industry from people uh, new to the industry or maybe coming at it from a completely different um, academic, a, a completely different background to people who've been in the industry for 20 plus years and have a master's degree, a, a, whatever, you know, and have very high level of technical insight into things. And so uh, 
a challenge for me was how do I meet the needs of that population? Mm -hmm. So I can do a, uh, I don't say beginner, but like an entry level kind of workshop on, you know, assessing great maturity. So what do we assess? How do we assess it? Why do we assess it? How might this change your picking decisions through to, uh, you know, adjustments in the winery? That, that side of that sort of workshop. So very hands on, and that might be appropriate for, for um, you know, for either certain people within the winery or certain wineries that that sort of level of training would be needed. And then there's kind of the more higher, the, the like these are the latest research findings in you know the formation of volatile sulfur compounds during aging. And so what do we now understand about sulfur chemistry and how might that reflect some things we could do to prevent that? Um, so there's a there's quite a range of different topics and different um, audiences that uh, that you kind of try and reach and um, you can't be all things to all people, um, but as one person, you know, I'm the, the sole enology extension person for the state, and so um, part of it is looking at where, where can you reach a high amount of people or most impactful or um, in the most effective way. So sometimes that is a, you know, um, an article that we put up on the website that we promote or push out through through email, or sometimes it is a hands-on workshop. So. Uh, we're doing something on using a spectrophotometer in the in the winery lab. It's probably best to do that as a hands-on workshop and learn about and do it together versus versus maybe a document that you follow along with or something along those lines. So that's morphed and changed as the industry's grown, but I think there's still that same kind of fundamental need for um, some kind of introductory, like you know, some that sort of level stuff through to what are the you know what are some of the latest findings in some of these areas from from our group here at OSU but also just in general in the in the you know colleagues at other universities uh, findings and bringing them and um, having them involved in trainings or, or um, giving talks or seminars things like that and from the research side that's that's just continually I mean that's a continually working on different projects and evolving um, using you know better understanding of what we've done previously and so um, yeah that's ever ever adjusting I guess ever adapting from both the perspective of the students you work with uh, and the industry people you work with how have you seen sort of entrance into the Oregon wine industry change have you seen the people who are coming into Oregon wine um, what do they look like now versus when you started? What are the what are the what are the differences there? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if, I, if there's been a a huge difference in. I mean, certainly there's there's just a lot more a lot more people that I interact with on the industry side of things and the student side of things too. You know, our program has grown both at the undergraduate level and the graduate level. Um, what I've really but I, now that I've been in, been here for a little while, uh, what I really enjoy now is seeing all my all of the ex students, all the alumni out in the industry, and see where they're going and what they're doing in their careers, both you know both here, but also in California, Washington, you know on the East Coast, other parts of the world. Uh, those that uh, it's always hard to keep keep in touch with every, everyone. We always tell tell our students when they graduate, make sure you keep in touch. But uh, and then the wine industry itself, there's a lot of movement within the wine industry. So you know, I may have an email that's three jobs old. So uh, you know, it's it's sometimes hard to keep track of where everyone's at. But um, I've really I get a, I've got a lot of enjoyment out of, out of seeing where people where students. Um, their careers and where they've gone and um, the, their enjoyment, I think, of, of the job they've gone into and um, also that they 
that they didn't completely bomb out the first job they got, that something we taught them here must have been relevant and stuck. And it's always nice to get a little bit of feedback from them, like, oh, yeah, I'm glad we learned that or something. But because, uh, you know, as a when you're teaching, it's you're trying to keep up to date with things that are relevant and, and making sure. I mean, that's one advantage of being in the in an extension role is that I have a lot of interaction with winemakers and, and people in the industry. So. Um, what's you know what they're currently dealing with, or you know from a lab point of view, what are you what are you typically measuring? Have you changed how you measure things? Are there new things that you would so that you can kind of adapt things in the classroom level so that they're at least going to be um, up to date with what uh, what kind of some current practices are? So yeah, it is always nice to get a little bit of feedback about. Oh yeah, I'm glad you you know what you I still use that lab manual. This you know that we have I'm like oh good, you know. Nice to feel there's some relevancy there. We talked a little bit before the camera rolled about 2020. Uh, I'm curious about your memories of that year and of the various challenges that afflicted the industry and, of course, the world at large. Tell me about sort of the pandemic part and the harvest part. What was your role and what was your, I don't know, how, how did you get through? How did you get through? How did you get your, how did you get your students through all, all of that? Yeah, we were talking before about how that seemed such a long time ago, but it wasn't. And there was so much happened in a short period of time there for, you know, certainly um, from a teaching point of view, you know, some pretty dramatic changes in a very short period of time. So um, I teach my wine production analysis class in spring term. Uh, so that starts the end of March. And so I remember still um, getting emails like on a daily basis about, you know whether we'd have to switch to teaching online and that it was like oh we might need to maybe the first week of class teaching online. oh might be the second week of class oh, maybe the, and then it was it was i think it was a week before classes started uh where it was like be prepared to teach the entire class online so my class is a, a pretty lab intensive class so it has lectures and then um, two labs a week is the standard two three-hour labs a week so Adapting to that was uh, took a lot of creativity to think about, and talking with a, a grad student who was my TA at the time, like figuring out how we how are we going to do this. And um, so the week before classes started, uh, we we uh, filmed ourselves doing the lab, basically demos for the labs. So we had to decide that you know, obviously there was not going to be an in, any in-person labs so how do we still get some level of training to the students and so uh, we we had all these list of labs that the students were going to do and so um, we set them up and I filmed myself again one person at a time because at that time we weren't even two people in a room it was just me so I would film myself uh, set up with a camera on a tripod and film myself doing and narrating the um, lab exercises so I'd start with you know maybe doing free 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 SO2 you know so adding this to this and then you do this and then making sure to explain why you do this and what could happen what could go wrong and troubleshooting added some added value into that as much as I could um, and trying to get as many of those done to start with and then uh, the other aspect of it that that we tried to come up with a we did come up with a, I think a good idea to still have some aspect of a tasting to it so part of the class there's um, uh, tastings 
more at a, like a production level tasting, so not so much, oh, this is a wine from New Zealand, or this is a wine from Australia, or this is a Burgundy, or whatever, but more along the lines of, you know, if you shift the pH in this wine, you know, how does it affect mouthfeel, or the sugar, how does it affect this and that, or these are taints in wines and training on taints and stuff. So we had quite a few lab exercises around sensory that we wanted to try and um, have the students at least have some exposure to that. So we ended up um, mailing small vials of wine to all of our students. So um, we made up all of the wines like we would for the sensory exercise and put them in little vials and labeled them one through, I don't know, there was about 30 wines in the end. And these little 20 mil samples and figured out how to get a little permission from, for shipping, you know, shipping small little alcohol samples. So, two students, because again, we couldn't, students weren't able to come and pick it up, and a number of students um, were out of state, so they were necessar weren't necessarily in Corvallis because nobody was coming to campus, so it didn't make sense for them to come to campus to, to take all the online. So um, I've got some photos of like hundreds and hundreds of vials. Um, so again, my, my TA did a great job. He labeled them all and everything, and then uh, I pulled them all and packaged them all up and then sent them off. Um, but what it meant was that for a particular lab exercise, we're all on Zoom together, and I can say, okay, today, pull out wines one to four, and we could all taste the wines together and talk about them. And so it was something that at least got us a little bit closer to you know, an interactive conversation and an in-person-ish experience. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. The, the lecturing over Zoom got tiresome pretty quick for students, you know, it's, you know so, and that lack of interaction there was really a challenge for everybody who was teaching during that time period is how do we get interaction with yourself as a teacher but also interaction amongst the students because that's, you know, that's a huge part of in-person. Uh, that's when you're in class and particularly when you're doing things like tasting wine and you're like, hey, describe what you're tasting and you get this back and forth between people. You know, that's tried to replicate that to some degree with having the, the um, shipping out the shipping out the little file. So we did that. Uh, it ended up because of just the timing with COVID that I, that in 2021 I had to teach the class online like that as well. We had some more opportunities there to have small you know, two or three students at a time in a lab. So we did some offers some um, voluntary. We couldn't make it compulsory. Voluntary. Uh, labs where some key kind of analyses, if you wanted to come in, we're going to run through this lab today. And so um, you still do it all online, but if you'd like to come in for a lab exercise, so I, I offered that as well. So doing lab with two or three people uh, and then also lecturing in person as well as over online. And we have a really large lecture hall here and so we're all set up to do that so that if students came they could be miles apart in the lecture there. Um, so yeah, so it was a, a really quick adaption to to that i mean literally two weeks and then one week it's like okay you have to 100 percent be online um so initially it was like okay i can i can figure out a week of online and then push all the labs further out and then push the labs further out so we can still be in person and then it was like no they're all going to be online so yeah so i mean we were successful in that sense but it was it was really hard um you know i, I really it, it was tough for the students um to miss that piece of their education um, for most of our, not just in the knowledge and viticulture side, but also the food science and fermentation science. 
most of the quote-unquote fun classes, the production classes, where all of that biochemistry and organic chemistry you learnt earlier and all those things, you know, come to fruition with learning these very specific, you know, these production level classes and stuff, they're all, you know, in your junior and senior year. So for our seniors in particular who missed out on all of those things, it was it was pretty it was it was hard. Um, so just I think that community sense of of being together as a class and going through those things together was uh, was really missing. So 2020 for sure. We tried to do more of that by 2021. We kind of learned some lessons along the way of how to have better collaboration, even in an online setting, and you know. Um, a number of us had, were teaching online, had taught and still teach online classes anyway as part of other things. And so there were lessons we could learn from them. Um, you know, OSU has a really strong e-campus program and so they were able to offer some suggestions on how to get more engagement because that was the key thing that was difficult was was engagement with students it's one thing to just lecture uh, lecture on zoom but how do you maintain engagement get some questions and discussion um, that that can be challenging so yeah it wasn't it wasn't straightforward that's for sure um, and I think we we all tried out to do our best to to give students some of that still but uh, yeah it was it, I don't have fond memories. I remember it was very, very busy and doing lots of things and, and just kind of getting through and uh, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, then as we headed towards harvest, um, thinking about and working with wine industry and, and a number of Zoom meetings with the broader wine industry that the Oregon Wine Board kind of helped facilitate on COVID rules in the winery and the vineyard, how do we deal with the, the social distancing and masking and, um, you know, so how are we going to operate in the vineyard and then how are we going to operate in the winery and uh, there was a lot of great sharing of ideas from companies that had kind of thought th some of these things through and so an exchange of ideas of how, you, how, how are you going to approach that and how we're going to do it and certainly bigger companies versus smaller wineries, you know, had different challenges there and so yeah, we were all ramping up for trying to figure out all of that and then and then the smoke came um, so uh, then it was all about like what are we what are we going to do about about this what impact is this going to have how can we adjust to this and so yeah that uh, that change focus you know we still we still had to work within the confines of, of COVID and the COVID restrictions um, but then now we had this added added comp, um, major complication of uh, of working with the uh, um, understanding, you know, what the exposure of smoke was going to, what impact that was going to have and how we could adapt to that. So what was your role or what was asked of you in that harvest time to, with the smoke, what, what, what did you, what were you able to contribute to that? So I helped with a facilitation of some of these meetings, um, distribution, distribution of information, uh, so working with colleagues here, uh, researchers here who were working on the, on the smoke issue and trying to, you know, there's resources from other places who've been dealing with smoke for a long time. So the Australians have some great resources, uh, even in California there was some, and so trying to kind of work on pulling that information, and so the, the Oregon Wine Board uh, also kind of became like a repository of some of that information so that we could collect collect into one place, like what, what do we know about about smoke and grapes and wine and, and what, you know, how do we try to address this and deal with this. The major, I think the major thing that, um, that I was involved with was, um, so there was a, a massive amount of testing of grapes and wine, that uh, demand for testing of grapes and wine for smoke compounds that occurred. 
um, and that quickly overwhelmed the commercial testing labs. So uh, they were backlogged up and basically, you know, you, you couldn't count on getting any results within a month. So uh, that became a big demand on like, huge demand in the industry for we need to know, you know, measure in our grapes and our wine to know what we can do. And so um, two researchers in this department, uh, Dr. Michael Chen and Dr. Elizabeth Tomasino, um, kind of stepped up and said, we've got some, some of these, some of the equipment that can measure these compounds. We're not necessarily currently measuring them all the time, but we can adapt, use current, some current methods and adapt and um, dedicate our, these, the, this equipment to smoke analysis. And so um, that took a big effort on their part um, to do that. And so that was a big piece of, um, of how OSU responded to, to that. Um, another piece of it was we uh, collected grapes from um, all around the state and all, a lot of different grape varietals to kind of get some baseline numbers on different varietals and, and different regions on, on smoke compounds in the grapes and then also in the wine. So that was kind of a project put together really quickly and uh, Patty, uh, Patty Skinkis and then other extension folk in different parts of the states are organized with growers to collect samples and either ship them here or deliver them here. And then I worked with, um, well, I, I worked with my group to sample those grapes and hand them off to either Michael or Elizabeth. And then we did uh, micro fermentations on the remaining. So uh, I think in the end we had about 80 to 90 samples that we worked with. And then we did 80 or 90 like micro fermentations. And then the wines made from there were then delivered to either Michael or Elizabeth for analysis. So um, that kind of gave us an opportunity, if you like, to see across grape varietals in different regions. Um, we weren't really sure how we would use this information, but we knew it could be valuable, certainly moving forward, to have that kind of database of information. Uh, and so uh, we coordinated to do that all. So that was, yeah, that was all happening, happening around harvest in a pretty short period of time to come up with that, to work with that, to coordinate the picking up of the grapes and then to do all the micro-fermentations. So yeah, that was a it was a big effort. Um, I know Elizabeth and Michael worked very long hours to, to get that done, and then to, to get the analysis done in a timely manner, mm -hmm. so that the give the industry some numbers that they can maybe make some decision management decisions on. So with your with your kind of extension work and your your connection to the to the wine community, did that did that change what they were asking of you or what they were expecting Oregon State to be doing going forward after 2020? Um, I'm not sure if it changed. I think there might have been a portion of the industry that maybe became more aware of what we were doing because there was a lot of exposure of what's always, you know, what we're doing in the, with the wine industry. And so um, there's often, you know, some core people that we work with a lot. They all come to all our events. They, you know, are very interactive and we have a lot to do with. And then there's the broader, you know, broadening out in the circles, uh, broader industry who may be aware of the program here and then others who are not, you know, not aware of us at all. And I think overall, probably a lot of increased awareness of the program here, the researchers here and capabilities and also just the partnership with industry. It was a really great example of 
um, coordinating and working with industry in a real strong partnership to get that process done. Mm -hmm. It was, um, you know, you guys are working on this, we're working on this, how can we do these things together and, and working together to get it done. So it really, I think, illustrated the strength of the connection with industry and OSU um, and, uh, you know, the, the research capabilities and people that we have here and how that could be utilized. So. Um, I think uh, I think it really emphasized that. That's that's how I've seen it, and so that's you know none of the none of what happened in 2020 was a positive. But uh, as far as uh, you know, moving forward with um, improved industry awareness and just collaborations that have grown from that, um, certainly that's been uh, been something that's born out of that. So I know that your you mentioned your role hadn't changed a whole lot until recently. So tell us about the recent changes to your role and what, yeah. what you're up to now. Yeah, so so recently, as of November 1st, I guess, was my official first day um, as the director of the Oregon Wine Research Institute. So um, I still am a professor in the food science department. I still uh, have a, my research program and teaching and some extension, although those duties have been reduced. Uh, so that I can take on this new administrative director role. So uh, the Oregon Wine Research Institute is a group of scientists at OSU and the USDA, and in partnership with the industry, the, that group was, the OWI was formed back in 2009, I think. Um, and uh, the scientists all work on wine and grape, uh, wine production, grape production, wine economics. So there's 10, 10 scientists currently in the group and uh, in Department of Food Science, Department of Horticulture, um, Ag Economics, and then the USDA IRS. So we're kind of a, a, a group of scientists who all predominantly work on grape and wine and the idea is that we kind of meet, we're, meet like a department would. Uh, we meet monthly, we have shared um, collaborations and goals and uh, so my new role is kind of to direct that group to help manage that group, to be um, really to be kind of the point person from the industry point of view as well. So um, information funneling in through me and funneling out, if you like, from the group as well. So uh, as far as outreach and communications that come out of the OWI office, um, that that's kind of one of my major goals or roles will be to um, look at our communications and uh, outreach strategies and you know because there is still a lot of industry who are not aware of, of even OSU's role in the knowledge of viticulture and economics research but certainly not the OWI as well so they may be aware of some of our individual programs and things that are going on um, but as a whole, uh, we, we're not, not as well known as, as we should be. There's some really outstanding work being done by scientists in the group, and so part of it is promoting that and looking at ways to, to get that information out, more communication and outreach, um, as well as that, that two-way you know, two street with industry on, on what's, what's happening out there and, and making sure that, uh, that that's being funneled back this way. So. Yeah, it's exciting. It's a new new kind of role for me. Um, although I've been part of the OWI since it began, um, so I'm and been in the industry since then as well. So um, my you know it kind of fits with the extension kind of outreach component to it, where there's a lot of interaction with industry, um, but also working internally now with OSU managing this group and working with the dean's office and uh, and what what might come from that. So yeah. Um, only been in, doing it for a, for about a month, although you know, kind of aware of, of the role and what what it might take. So, um. what made this sort of the time you wanted to take this this challenge on? 
Yeah, so like I said, I've been part of the group for for a while now, and uh, we have a, a really great group of scientists, and I think I really think that the ODBRI as a group and as an entity is really valuable um, for for the industry and for us. So um, I really really believe in what we're doing and wanting to to move that forward. Um, so we've we've gone through some different um, different types of leadership and different ways that we've uh, we've organised ourselves, and so I saw this as a good opportunity to to contribute and to to serve in that role and um, to I think like I said to really promote and be a bit of a cheerleader for the group um, and uh, and continue to kind of work on that outreach that outreach capacity. So uh, I still get to uh, contribute on the on the research side of things and do some teaching and, and that. But this is kind of now I think opening up new opportunities to um, work with a broader group of industry and as well as as um, you know, look for ways to enhance what we're what we're doing within the OWA group. So obviously, you've you've the focus is on research awareness, you know, that kind of work. Um, what else as you look ahead to your first year or first couple of years in this role? Um, what are some goals you have or some kind of outcomes you're looking for? Yeah, I think, like I said, general awareness of of the OWI and um, increased engagement with industry is is a it's a that's a big goal, um, but that's a continuing ongoing goal and how to do that better and and different avenues to do that. Um, so you know communication strategies and and you know we'll be hiring someone to to work on that and to be really the um, to, to help develop develop a more maybe cohesive way in doing that. Um, but that, that's an on, I mean that's an ongoing challenge. I think not unique to us necessarily is uh, is awareness of what we do and then how how to to translate that information to to stakeholders. Um, so we serve serve the Oregon wine industry, and so how do we how do we reach them more and um, in, in a more effective manner? So for me, as far as those goals, um, you know, getting increased engagement and awareness of of OWR, who we are and what we do, so that uh, if I ask someone uh, if they heard of us, that at least they they somewhat know. I mean. The, the AWRI, the Australian Wine Research Institute, is a great example of, a, of uh, within the wine, wine world anyway, if you ask, do you know who the AWRI is, they will know they're a great resource, they've been around for a while, they're kind of a go-to. So for the Oregon industry, you know, I'd like us to be the go-to for, for research-based um, information, for, for sound information. And uh, you know we do a lot of uh, of work that's very Oregon centric, that's unique to Oregon, that pertains to Oregon, and so we want to be the resource that that uh, people go to. Um, so you know whether that's a Google search or whether that's just just a knowledge that uh, hey I know where to go for this information. There's a great group down in at OSU that uh, that's been working on this, or you know uh, from a whatever problem might might pop up. So. Mm-hmm. That's you know, short term and long term is is improving that, and then within the group, looking at um, um, some more maybe longer term strategic research goals um, that there may be opportunities to pursue that within the group as a collaborative research projects. Uh, so some of that is coordinating with with research that's already going on, but also thinking thinking longer term that other uh, longer term projects. Uh, sometimes the scientists were quite um, good at. Or a lot of it is, is, is funding driven too. There's lots of short-term problems and short-term issues that take our attention or things that we need to work on. But then you know there's these overarching maybe longer-term um, research 
goals that we also need to look at ways how do we how do we approach that and, and work on those type of problems and those type of strategies. So, you know, climate change, for example, big topic covers everything really. But like within that, how are we as a group? Um, how can we address that and look at from an Oregon uh, Oregon industry point of view? What are the key things there that would that uh, we need to be addressing and thinking five, 10 years, 15 years down the road, um, and how do we kind of address that now? Um, so there's always this mixture of short-term research and long-term research, and um, I think uh, the long-term research piece of it is part that uh, that we can be that that uh, is one of my my goals is to is to look at how to do that better. What what, what do we need to do more of that long-term research? Mm -hmm. So I, we talked earlier about your kind of initial impressions of Oregon, and you already mentioned obviously the massive growth since you've been here. How else has the industry evolved and changed since you've started kind of being aware of it? And as we near the end of 2023 here, what does the industry look like to you right now? Yeah, how has it evolved and changed? I mean, apart from just the, the tremendous growth, I think there's a there's definitely and again. I don't interact with every everybody, so it's based on my, my experiences. But definitely, um, a lot of what I'm seeing with the, the wines is a lot of refinement of things versus big, you know, big changes and big swings at at, uh, at issues or things that might have come up. So it's a lot of you know understanding some of the nuances and and uh, yeah, more of the refining some of the practices in the vineyard and the winery. Um, more so than you know when I started, even back in 2006. Uh, there's still some of those fundamental problems and things that are, that every now and then pop up, but they're not uh, not a continual you know continual thing. I think overall that you know the the chances of a flawed or faulty wine are, are very 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 low. Um, so I think the industry has done a you know technically doing a, has done a really there's been a big advancement in that. Um, and so, yeah, now it's it's uh, some of these more refinement and, and nuances. And sometimes, you know, every every now and then, there's the years that throw up throw up challenges that we have to adjust to. Um, and then, so having that base knowledge of how to adjust to those is kind of key. So we're we're less kind of reactionary um, for some of them. But you know, so smoke is a great example of that. Uh, the more and more we know about that, so if we ever. Uh, have any issue like that widespread before? You know, we're we're in a much better place now than we we were a couple of years ago. Uh, so, um, I think that that's that's been a big piece of it. Uh, I think I still see that same level of um, cooperation and um, collaboration amongst the industry, even 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 as it's got larger and larger and larger. Um, Again, there's still there's still that there's still this um, you know grounding and you know from the very beginning it wasn't that long ago that the, the Oregon industry really took off and started so we still got that kind of generational knowledge that's in the industry and then now there's like a new new generation coming through and uh, working with uh, a lot you know in some of our groups and stuff lots of assistant winemaker level and it's really it's really fun to see or interesting to see that different the new kind of new generation of winemakers um, coming through but still with that underpinning of of um, some of the founding people of the industry are still heavily involved and active um, and passing on passing on all of their wisdom so um, yeah it's a, it's a I think it's the industry is in a really Oregon industry seems to be in a very healthy place, and you know, there's there's always the constraints and, and the pressure of, of markets and and uh, you know, 
just this year of seeing seeing things happen in other states that uh, it's hard to know you know our place in it. But Oregon seems to be in a good place when it comes to to that. And I think our focus on on premium wines, on uh, the slightly high price price point, I think has placed placed us well in that sense. Um, so I you know I could see that continuing. Well, what do you, else do you see as you look ahead for the Oregon wine industry? Obviously, you mentioned things like climate change, things like smoke that are kind of lingering, lingering issues. Um, what comes next for the industry? What are you sort of looking forward to? And what are some of you, maybe your, something you're fearful of for the future of the industry? Um, I think adaptability is a big is a big piece of what of what I mean. We've seen that just it might just been might just be the uh, the hangover from 2020. But the ability you know the adaptability of the industry, which is a big strength, I think. But um, so adapting to what happened in 2020, the smoke, um, even the frost we had last year, being adapting and understanding that. Uh, so moving forward, increasing our you know our understanding of. Um, some of the impacts of these things, so that again, when or if they they happen, that we're we're again more able to um, adjust and adapt and learn rather than rather than like a reactionary. What do we do now? Process. So, I think the the industry is maturing in that sense, in that we're in a we have some, you know. People in the industry with that knowledge and the the researchers with kind of that knowledge now as well in all these different areas when these things pop up and that's just a continual process. Um, so as far as moving forward, yeah, I mean I, I'm very optimistic about where where Oregon wine is going and uh, and where it's at. it's been exciting to see the um, I guess it hasn't been that recent but the the um, the amount of new Chardonnay being being produced and, and Chardonnay kind of taking uh, taking on a new role in Oregon uh, and sparkling wine, another one that uh, um, we see kind of became as popular and has gotten more and more popular. So there's new avenues and things to, to be explored. I think Chardonnay is a, is a great example of that. Um, Pinot is still the still number one and still should be, but uh, you know I think the adaptability to looking beyond just just Pinot Noir as well. Um, I think we're along the lines of, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, climate change and adapting to climate change. It's not ripping up the vines and putting in new varieties. It's a, it's a, it's understanding that on the vineyard side, you know, what adaptions and things, be it canopy management, be it soils, be it irrigation, be it whatever it might be, um, that uh, that we're able to adapt and and still produce. Uh, these, uh, you know, the high-quality wines of the style that that we've that we'd like. They're, things are going to shift. It's not ever going to stay the same. I mean, the wines now that we're drinking are not the same as the wines that we were drinking in 1980. Um, but I think, uh, you know, Pinot Noir is 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 Oregon, and I think uh, even with climate change and the pressures that might bring, it's it's the ability to adapt to what that might bring that's going to um, really, I think, be the key. We talked a bit about your kind of professional goals in the new role. Tell me anything else you're looking forward to in the future, either professionally, personally, in, in, or, in or outside of the industry. Um, other plans or goals for your future? Sure. Um, so the other thing that, that's work-related but uh, that's exciting is um, where, so uh, here at OC we have a small research teaching, um, research 
yeah, research and teaching winery mm -hmm. uh, that's been relatively unchanged for a long time. And so we've recently have, uh, had the opportunity to renovate that space. And so across the street, you, nice. there's a big construction going on and the building that the winery is housed in is getting completely renovated and the winery itself is getting expanded. So when I first came here, um, the winery probably had not changed much since Barney Watson had started there, and uh, it hasn't changed that much since. We've, you know, we've got some new equipment and some new bits and pieces, but we're at a very, we were in a very small space, and so uh, that's very exciting to to have that, have a new space. It'll be about another nine to twelve months before we're there, but a little short-term pain of making wine somewhere else for a couple of years uh, while they do that. So that's what I'm really excited about too, because it's been. Uh, it's been a long time coming, and uh, it's I can see how much it's going to benefit uh, both our research program, but um, even more than that, the teaching program. So uh, students are really going to um, have some great facilities to to learn winemaking in and be exposed to some new technologies. Uh, we're really trying to look at um, being very forward thinking in some of the technologies uh, that we're going to use. Um, and uh, so that that's very exciting to me that uh, to have this have a new facility in, in a year um, so come back in a year and I can show you uh, but like I said that there's been a long time coming so it's been you know speaking of adaptability we've done pretty well in our old space to adapt to what we've got but uh, um, this is gonna gonna make my life a lot easier uh, from a winemaking point of view and um, and I think it's gonna be a really great asset for the teaching and research program so mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, um, what else? Yeah, that's, that's the major thing on the professional side of things apart from this new position. Um, personally, yeah, my kids are both teenagers now, so like I said, my son was born a couple of months after I started here, and now he's a junior in high school. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's all. He wants to go to OSU, so that's great. Um, but yeah, so that's 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 been a big change as they've moved into being teenagers, and uh, yeah, in a year or so he'll be done with high school. So yeah, it gives you some perspective on on time, etc. Um, uh, being a, from a, a newborn to a to a junior in school, in high school now. So. Last question for you, um, as you look back from where you are right now, tell me something that you're proud of or an accomplishment that you know kind of sits particularly high on your, on your, on your list. Um, I think it's a couple of things. One is more general versus specific, and that is just you know um, seeing particularly my graduate students who've come through the program and then go on into industry and see how successful and the things they've been doing it. It, uh, you know, I, it's, it really gives me pride to, to see that um, where they've gone and, and know that I had a teeny little piece in that, hopefully, something I taught them um, and in getting either, you know, training or just into the wine industry. Um, so that, that's, that's been a big source of, uh, of, of pride to, to look back and, and, like I said, now encountering students out in the industry and chatting to them about where they're at and what they're doing. Uh, on the research side of things, yeah, a couple of, um, you know, research is an interesting, an interesting endeavor sometimes where, some of the some of the things you find out you find out by accident, and other things you you try really hard to figure out, and you never figure them out. And it's just the way it goes with when, especially exploratory research. And so, um, a few years ago, one of the more uh, I think, from my perspective, professionally satisfying re um, research results uh, was looking at the some of the interactions between malactic bacteria and Britannomyces spoilage. Um, and we were looking at a project on um, malactic fermentation and color. Mm -hmm. 
and how it impacts a color. And so we're looking at some of the metabolism, potential metabolism of some of the phenolic compounds by the bacteria that might impact color. And we noticed, we saw some, some of our results that there was a particular, one particular strain of bacteria um, was metabolizing this one phenolic compound that didn't have, it had a small role in color, but it had a bigger role in the production of spoilage compounds by Britannomyces. So the compound is called chimeric acid. So Britannomyces converts chimeric acid into um, four ethylphenol, which is the band-aidy, barnyardy, horsey smell in, in that bread produces. And so through looking at it in color and just noticing this result, we like started to put two and two together about um, if you did malolactic fermentation with a particular strain, you ended up with a lot more of this precursor compound in the wine. So then if you had a Brett infection, you got a lot more of this compound in it. Mm -hmm. So a lot more of the spoilage compound versus some of the other strains that didn't do this. So um, from that we you know, did a lot, did a bit more research into looking at uh, the different strains that might or might do that, might or might not do that, and uh, ended up working with the actual malolactic fermentation companies that produce the strains, a couple of them, um, who now screen all of their bacteria for this trait. So it's it's fun to do research on the bench top and find out these different things. It's even more rewarding and fun to see like an application of it and at this point an application by, you know, actually uh, commercial companies. And then, you know, that's got to really, sometimes you do research and it's hard to, to like point to an exact like, this is an impact of it kind of thing. It's often kind of this, we're adding to the knowledge of something and so it's going to have an improved effect because we've added this piece of knowledge to it versus like, we did this, we found this and now people do this differently. So that was one of one thing that that I can kind of think of or point to. That's like we did this, we found this, and now, you know, this is a change practice. So that get, that's from a researcher's point of view gives me satisfaction and and being able to to uh, think think through that process. And it was like I said, it was we were looking at something else, and then it was a, a side result, if you like, from that project. And then you know taking that, and then that's where that where we you know where we led. So uh, fortuitous in some ways. Mm -hmm. All right, all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Uh, anything we didn't cover that you'd like to cover? No, if there's anything we didn't cover, I feel like I've talked for a long time about myself, which is not always the most comfortable. Um, no, no, I don't, I, I can't think. I think, uh, like I said, I really enjoyed the journey and it was a, a circuit, you know, an unusual route into the wine industry and an unusual route into academics. It certainly wasn't something that, as a teenager, I'm like, that's what I want to do, and do it. Um, but that's, you know, that's how often life happens. It's uh, opportunities arise, or saying yes to some things and no to others, and here I am. So, yeah, yeah, I've enjoyed the journey. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I uh, appreciate your time and sharing your story with us. Congratulations on your new role, and best of luck. And I'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.